Thank you, too. Mike and Marsha for doing the music today. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, John mentioned during the announcements we have those half sheets for LifeWise. And again, I can't recommend it strongly enough. One of the goals of LifeWise is that it's an opportunity to reach kids who otherwise would not have an opportunity to go to church. Because I know that's a point that people have sometimes brought up, that why can't they just go to a youth group? Well, ideally, they would go to both. But some kids have parents who aren't going to take them, but they would allow them to participate in something like LifeWise. And so for that reason, it's a great opportunity. And uh, again, teaching kids the gospel and the Bible. Um, And so again, if you haven't signed the petition, you know, we don't live in a city of millions of people. We live in a town of about 850. So every signature, every voice really counts in a town that's this size. And so your voice does matter a lot, and it's important to have support from the community. Galatians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day and this time of the year. Lord, at the time of harvest, we continue to pray for farmers who are out in the fields. We pray for a good harvest. We pray for a safe harvest. Lord, we also want to lift up people who work at the elevators, the incredibly long and difficult hours that they work. And for everyone else who's working in various jobs that are helping to support and provide infrastructure for agriculture and farming, Lord, we just pray for them in this season. Lord, we also want to lift up little Edward, and we pray for him and his recovery from RSV, and that he um, just make a speedy and full recovery. Lord, we pray for his parents, for his family, sure that's a scary thing. And so we just uh, pray for your nearness to them. Lord, we also want to rejoice in a successful surgery for Courtney this week, and we continue to lift her up and pray for her and recovery. And Lord, we just thank you for your goodness. We pray for our time today as we study in your word, that we be pointed to the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. The foods we eat. Our diet is largely cultural. There are foods that are part of the American diet that people in other parts of the world would not like. And there are undoubtedly foods eaten in other places that we would not like. In the American diet, we eat a lot of processed foods, processed cheese. In France, cheese is part of the culture. It's an entire course at the meal. It's an entire section at the grocery store. They'd be appalled at the idea of a individually wrapped craft single. Conversely, many of the cheeses that they eat in France would be too strong and too smelly for our palate. But then, in many Asian countries, cheese isn't even a big part of the diet. Other differences. American foods are often too sweet for the palate of other people around the world. 
I was talking to Don Stout, who's a missionary with support in France. He said that his wife loves baking, and she used an American recipe. She cut the sugar in half over in France, and even that was still too sweet for people. Ranch dressing is hard to find in most of the world. Much of Europe does not have America's affinity for peanut butter. And to most of the rest of the world, root beer tastes like cough syrup. But again, there are things that others eat that we wouldn't. Don and Dalvani Austin, missionaries that the church, church supports in Brazil, they've talked about foods that they eat. They're in the jungle. They eat what they can catch. Sometimes that means they eat things like monkeys. I asked some missionary friends in Asia. They said that there's a saying in China that they'll eat anything with four legs but a table and anything with wings but an airplane. Even within America, food preferences vary by region. If you live on the coast, there's much more of a seafood culture. When I lived in Minnesota with its heavy Norwegian population, during the holiday season, some restaurants carry a traditional Norwegian dish called lutefisk. If you've never heard of lutefisk, it's a white fish that's dehydrated and then rehydrated by soaking it in a lye solution for several days or weeks and then washing it off. I could never bring myself to try it. I've heard it, has, I've heard it tastes like fish, but with like a gelatinous consistency. When I lived in St. Louis, they have their own pizza style. It's cooked on dough that does not rise and made with a special processed cheese, which is a blend of provolone, mozzarella, and cheddar. If you've never had St. Louis style pizza, it's about as appetizing as lutefisk. <laughs> Chicago has its own hot dog style, where you take a perfectly good hot dog and a perfectly good hot dog bun and then ruin it with things like ketchup and pickles and relish and Again, a lot of it, though, is based on preferences. There are places where people eat insects, crickets, termites, and beetles. Oh, my. Once again, that sounds gross to our sensibilities. But Americans like lobster, which are basically cockroaches. And at seafood restaurants, we like crabs, which are crabs. And again, if you were from somewhere else, you might have different preferences. We have different ideas about food. There might be some foods where we have a certain moral misgiving about. There are lots of reasons why a person might be vegan or vegetarian. For some, it's because of religious views. For some, it's concern over the ethics of eating animals. And there can be different convictions that different people have about eating different meats. I probably would not eat veal personally. In other parts of the world, People eat dogs. I'll just speak for myself. I could not eat a dog. Because to me, a dog is a pet, and it just seems wrong. But really, it's not inherently wrong. It's just a cultural difference. Some people eat rats. I would eat a dog every day for the rest of my life before I ate a rat. <laughs> Why? Because they seem dirty to me. But we eat chicken. Chickens are filthy. We eat pork. Pigs basically live in their own filth. But there are these various associations we have with different animals and different foods. In 2000, Heinz released ketchup that was different colors. Same flavor, the color was different. It did not sell well. Why? Because ketchup is red. 
People don't want green or purple ketchup. For the Jewish people, they had a long history of having food requirements in the Old Testament. It was ingrained into their psyche and into their diets. Certain foods were clean and other foods were unclean. We have these ideas too, but again, to us, they're cultural. For the Jewish people, they were a matter of religious conviction. In the Old Testament, you couldn't eat pork. You couldn't eat shellfish. Basically, anything that lives in water that's not a fish was forbidden. For animals that you could eat, there were requirements on how they were slaughtered. Certain parts of an animal couldn't be eaten. You couldn't consume the blood of an animal. There were certain holy days where you had to fast. And then you had the Gentiles who did not observe those dietary restrictions. They ate foods that the Jews would have thought of as being unclean. They also didn't follow the Jewish purification and washing rituals. And for that reason, there were some in the rabbinical tradition who thought of Gentiles, again, most of us, if not all of us, as being inherently unclean. And when that becomes part of your mentality, when it becomes part of your thinking, when you come to faith in the gospel, it's hard to completely change how you've always thought. Old habits die hard. I return to foods that we think of as being culturally unclean. You could make me a rat burger and tell me that it was corn-fed, cage-free, disease-free. I still am not going to eat it. In the early years of the church, when most of the Christians had come from a Jewish background, there were some clashes between Jews and Gentiles over diet and fellowship. The gospel was meant to unite. It was meant to unite people of all walks of life, people of every tribe and tongue and nation, Jews and Gentiles. The dietary restrictions of the Old Testament were no longer law and were no longer required because Jesus had fulfilled the law. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In Mark 7, 19, it says that Jesus made all food clean. But some still struggled with this new approach to food in the church. And there were those who still tried to compel Christians to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And in today's passage... We see that even the apostles were not immune to these struggles as Peter would become embroiled in a food-related controversy and Paul would publicly confront him. We're continuing in our Galatians series this morning and in today's passage, we'll explore this controversy and why it was another challenge to the gospel. In last week's passage, Paul was dealing with people who had tried to impose another aspect of the Old Testament law, circumcision. In this passage, with this new controversy, people had tried to force the Jewish diet on Christians. And as we'll see in this passage, it was another gospel issue. The main idea of this passage this morning is that the gospel is meant to unite the church, not divide the church. And we'll be looking at this passage in three scenes. A dining controversy, a bad influence, and a sin confronted. And with that... We'll jump right into our passage. First scene, a dining controversy, looking at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
So the location from the last passage changes from Jerusalem to Antioch. In the first century, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was also much more diverse in Antioch than it was in Jerusalem. You had a lot of Gentile converts, many more than what you would have had in Jerusalem. Paul mentions Cephas. As a reminder, Cephas and Peter are the same person. Simon Peter was his name. Cephas was a nickname. At different times, Paul refers to him by both of those names. And Paul says that he had opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 12, Paul gets into describing the situation. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter had been eating meals with both Jewish and Gentile Christians together, as he should have, because both groups are one in Christ. But then he started to face pressure from those who had sought to impose restrictions on diet and fellowship, and they had coerced Peter into withdrawing from Gentile Christians. Now, that's certainly very ironic, considering that Peter should have been the last person to have made this error. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was given a divine vision where it was communicated to him by the Lord that he was permitted to eat all foods. He sees this sheet-like object descend with all of these formerly forbidden foods. Acts chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter is initially hesitant. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 14. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But the Lord again confirms to him that all foods are clean. Chapter 10, verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. And yet, when those who are trying to continue imposing the Old Testament on Christians, Peter backs down to their demands. Peter, one of the apostles, a man who spent three years with Jesus. He had been a leader in the early church. He wrote two books in the New Testament. In the Gospels, he's almost always the first one of the group to speak up. But here, he lets the pressure get to him. If anyone could have and should have been able to have stood up to this pressure, it should have been someone like Peter. But Peter also had his moments of cowardice. He was the same man who denied the Lord three times on the night he was crucified. But we see in this instance that even an apostle can make a mistake. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, you might be asking, is that such a big deal? Yes, because there is one gospel. And for Peter to withdraw from certain Christians over something that's not a sin issue and not a gospel issue is imposing extra-biblical requirements. That undermines the freedom which is found in Christ. We talked about this last week. A gospel with law is no gospel at all. Men adding law to the gospel enslaves. Christ brings freedom. It's also a problem because 
It's treating Gentile Christians who do not keep those dietary laws as second-class citizens within the church. As for Paul's response, Paul has used intense language elsewhere in this book, especially if you've been with us every week. In chapter 1, he said that anyone who preached another gospel should be accursed. In our passage from last week, he referred to those who were imposing false he, he referred to those who were imposing circumcision as false brothers. Paul will not back down when the gospel is at stake. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives instructions for dealing with conflict with someone and when they sin against you. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And he continues to talk about different scenarios off of that. Someone might wonder if maybe that should have been Paul's response here. But this was not a matter of Peter sinning against Paul personally. It was a matter of Peter falling in line with false teaching. And so Paul calls Peter out. He'll later say that he opposed Peter to his face. It was a public sin committed by a preacher of the gospel, and Paul publicly addressed it. Paul was not perfect. He calls himself the worst of sinners. But he is right in this situation. And the loving thing to do was to correct Peter. For both Peter's sake and for the sake of those whom he was influencing, this needed to be addressed. The gospel is meant to unite the church, not divide the church. And Peter was becoming part of what caused division. We come to our second point, a bad influence. Now, I want to point out a couple things very quickly. Looking again at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter was fearful. That's why he backed down out of fear. He feared the circumcision party, those who were trying to impose these various Old Testament laws. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 11, that's the chapter right after Peter's told he can eat all things, Peter had another confrontation with people who shared this Old Testament ideology, and in chapter 11, he stands up to them. But here in Galatians 2, Paul talks about Peter backing down and doing so from fear. I think Thomas Schreiner, who's a New Testament scholar, makes a compelling case in his commentary that there was actually starting to be threats of violence in this Antioch church. That's the reason why Peter gives in. If that's the case, it makes his decision a little bit more understandable. It's still wrong, and he should still have known better, because it's a gospel issue, and we should not be bullied into concession on gospel issues, but it does make a little bit more sense of things. Peter was supposed to be a leader. I've talked about some of the reasons why his failure mattered. Another reason why his sin matters is that in doing what he was doing, he was leading people away from the truth. Peter was influential, and in him withdrawing from table fellowship with Gentile Christians, that influenced the behavior of other Jewish Christians. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
something to note. Paul says that Peter acted hypocritically and that he had also gotten others to act hypocritically. The Greek word that gets translated as hypocrisy is a word that basically means something like play acting or acting in a theatrical sense, that the hypocrite is somebody who's playing a character. Now, when we think of someone as being a hypocrite, it's often someone who says that we should do one thing, but they themselves do something else. And indeed, that is hypocritical. But for Peter, his, his, his hypocrisy was not in saying one thing and doing another. Peter was a hypocrite for believing one thing and then doing something contrary to that. Peter was not faithful to what he knew was true. Again, Peter doesn't change his mind. He changes out of fear. He knew that the dietary restrictions were no longer enforced. He'd been told this by divine revelation, but he was still willing to go against this practice. Hypocrite. Now, the world loves to levy charges of hypocrisy against Christians. Many of us have probably had conversations with friends or family members who stopped going to church or who don't go to church. Why? Hypocrites. Churches are full of hypocrites. And I'll be honest, that has always seemed like a weak reason to me. I think it's more of an excuse than an argument. Someone acting hypocritically does not invalidate the church, and it certainly does not invalidate the gospel. In a church, you have a whole spectrum of different people. Some are not believers at all, but they're seekers, and they want to learn more. Some might be new to the faith, and they're still learning and still spiritually immature. And you have some who are well-seasoned, spiritually mature Christians, and everything in between. When people point to hypocrites as a reason why they don't go to church or why they don't believe the gospel, well, you're not a Christian because you believe in the morality of people. In fact, you believe in the gospel because you don't believe in the inherent morality of people because you realize that people are sinful, and so it shouldn't be that big of a shock that people do sinful things. It's unfortunate, but it shouldn't surprise you. Sin should never surprise you. The gospel revolves around knowing that you're a sinful person and that the only way to be redeemed by a holy God is through the sacrificial death that the Lord Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. And yeah, in that, sometimes people can act hypocritically, either because they're not really saved or because sometimes even Christians sin. I'll say one last thing about hypocrisy. Because there's another type of hypocrisy which can exist in the church. There can be the hypocrisy of pretending. Pretending to believe when maybe you actually don't. When you come to church, there's pressure. There's pressure to talk the talk. There's a lot of reasons why people go to church. Obviously, most, it's to worship. Some might come for family, though. Some might come because it's just something that you've always done and you like the people. Some might come because there's things about Christianity that they appreciate. And as I said a moment ago, some might come because they're seeking, but they don't really believe yet. 
But not everyone who comes inside of a church is genuinely a Christ follower. Between different churches where I've served, I've had people in church tell me that they don't believe the gospel. And you know what? I at least appreciate that they'll be honest about that. Obviously, I care about what a person believes. I care about people having faith in the gospel and believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's why I'm committed to preaching the gospel every week. But if someone isn't really a Christian, doesn't really believe the gospel, doesn't really believe that they're saved by grace and that Jesus died and rose to forgive sins, I'd rather know where someone stands than a person just saying that they believe if maybe they really don't. In a few moments, we'll take communion. Jesus gave us communion to point to his death and as a tangible way to remember the gospel. Communion is meant for the person who believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But there's always the risk in communion. In this church and in every church in the world, that people will take communion, not because they truly believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but because the person next to them took it, and because you're in a church, because you don't want to be different. Pretending to be a Christian, if you don't actually believe it, is hypocritical. And so that's a real danger in the church. People who aren't Christians going through the motions. You might fool all of us, but you will not fool an all-knowing God with pretending. Back in our passage, at the end of verse 13, Paul says, Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That's another part of the problem with what Peter had done. He had treated Gentile Christians like second-class citizens, but Peter was also influencing other Christians with his behavior, including Barnabas, a man who had worked with both Peter and Paul. Barnabas was an important figure in the early church. In Acts chapter 9, it was Barnabas who had introduced the recently converted Paul to some of the other apostles. Barnabas had been a key figure in the Antioch church. He was of Jewish origin, but had been influential in the evangelistic mission to the Gentiles. But when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, this influenced Barnabas, who followed suit, because Peter was influential. It's amazing the impact that we can have on others. That can be for good or for ill. In this passage, it was for a bad purpose that Peter sinned in discriminating against non-Jewish Christians. Just a minute ago, I talked about hypocrisy. It can be really easy to have the church version of you and then kind of the real version of you when you're with your friends and family. But are you the same with both groups? Because you can be an influence for good, but if you're not careful, you can be more influenced than influencer. I've known people, and I hope everyone in this room has known people, who have had such a presence, such a natural joy, such a relationship with God, where I thought, I want what they have. People who have been models of integrity, of genuineness, of love, 
and the impact that those people can have on those around them. I talk so often about being a light to the world, and that's what I mean. Being influential for how you conduct your life. That's part of the beauty of the church. Again, people can find things to criticize, but so much of the good that happens in the church is at the one-on-one level, with people encouraging others, loving one another, being examples to others. I've heard stories before of things that people in this church have done to serve others that I I didn't hear from the person, I heard secondhand, that have almost had me in tears because I was so touched. And it's not something that they feel they need to broadcast to the whole world, but just little things of serving people, not for acclaim or attention, but to be loving. It's a touching thing. Are you making an impact for the gospel? Or are you following the ways of the world? I'll share this story about influences. Robbie has pretty much outgrown this, but when he was a younger baby, he used to pick up things off the floor with his mouth. And I don't mean he would pick up things and put them in his mouth, because all babies do that, but he would crawl around, and if it was on the ground, he would just pick it up with his mouth. And we're pretty sure that he did that because that's what the dog does, and she was influencing him. But that's the influence we can have on those around us. People see us. They talk to us. What are we showing to them? To paraphrase one of Paul's most famous statements from 1 Corinthians 13, when Robbie was a dog, he walked like a dog, he acted like a dog, he picked up toys like a dog, but when he realized he was a baby, he put doggish things away. We come to our third point, a sin confronted. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, this is a short passage. It's four verses. But Paul basically ends where he began. He began the story in verse 11 by talking about how he opposed Peter. Then he gives to the story as to why he opposed Peter. And in verse 14, he's coming to the culmination of that story and again reminding us that he opposed Peter. Paul saw what was happening, and he called Peter out. Paul says, I said to Cephas before them all. Again, Paul publicly confronted Peter. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's a good tongue twister. What Paul is saying here is, you're Jewish, and you've already stopped following the laws of the Old Testament a Jew living like a Gentile. The things you were doing were no different from what the Gentiles could do. But in Peter being pressured to change, now he's trying to get the Gentiles to live like Jews. In other words, to start following the Old Testament requirements as if those things will earn you right standing before God. But we can't earn God's favor by our actions. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the message of the grace of Christ, freely given, and it's meant to unite, not divide. And that's why Paul was so passionate about this, because it is a gospel issue. The gospel is meant to unite the church, not divide the church. And Peter was adding requirements for fellowship among non-Jewish believers, and that was very serious. 
And so Paul confronts his sin. In a few moments, we'll take communion. It's a fitting passage for communion, considering it's a passage which revolves around the subject of table fellowship. I want to give a little bit of history of communion. In my lifetime, I've been a part of about nine different churches, visited many more. And at all those churches, communion was pretty much the same. Communion is something that's part of a church service. But in the earliest churches, you didn't have a dedicated building that was built as a church. In the early church, they were meeting in people's homes. And when they took communion, it was in the context of a shared meal where communion was part of the meal. Now, I'm not saying one way or the other is better. The Bible doesn't say communion has to be a course in a meal. What the Bible says communion must have is the bread and the cup and that they're meant to be in remembrance of Jesus, his body broken for sin, his blood shed for sin, and the new covenant that he ushered in. But I give that background because it's important to understand that communion was part of a meal in the early church. And for Peter to be withdrawing or pressuring Gentiles to follow the Old Testament dietary restrictions meant that Peter had put up a boundary where Gentile Christians would not be able to sit at the communion table with Peter. And when you consider that, it makes what Peter did an even greater affront to the gospel. At the Last Supper, Jesus instituted communion, quoting from the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, let me start again. And he took bread, and when he had given, it, given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In the old covenant, there was law. In the new covenant, there is grace. In the old covenant, there were dietary restrictions. In the new covenant, we have a savior who has fulfilled the law. In the old covenant, there was one nation. The new covenant is meant for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. In the new covenant, the old divisions are torn down. As Paul will say in the following chapter, Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are not first-class and second-class Christians, because there is one gospel, and all who believe it are equally one in Christ. And at this point, if the deacons and bishops who are serving communion want to work their way forward, I think about this passage and I think about the unity which the gospel is meant to instill in the church. And I think of how much disunity there is within churches and between churches. That should not be so. Worldwide, do you have any idea how many different Christian denominations there are? I'll give you a second to think about that question. How many denominations are there in the whole world? It's a lot. More than 33,000. And that's a conservative estimate according to the 2001 World Christian Encyclopedia. So many different churches, so many different divisions, so often over such small things. The gospel is meant to unite the church, not divide the church. And so many churches come to division over things that are not the gospel. 
Sadly, even communion becomes a source of division within many churches. At this church, because we can't speak for what all churches do, but at this church, the only requirement to take communion is belief in the gospel because we have a Savior who invites us to his table. People can quibble about so many minor things, but what should matter above all else in the church is a shared faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we're committed to that, and believing that, and living that out, then anything else can be overcome because we're agreed on the most important thing. And so as I said a moment ago, when we take communion, it should be a reminder of the gospel. And it should also be a reminder of the new covenant that Jesus instituted. And it should be a reminder of the fellowship and of the unity that Christians are invited to share and enjoy with each other at the table of fellowship. And as I said a moment ago, we practice open communion, open to anybody who believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is what is meant to unite us in communion, is a shared faith in the gospel, and that we have a risen Savior. So if you bow your heads with me, we'll pray before we participate in communion this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do have a Savior who has died and risen, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, who was ushered in a new covenant, who could do that because he fulfilled the law, and he invites us to his table. He invites us to fellowship with him and with one another as his church. And so, Lord, as we partake of this communion, may we remember the Savior who died and rose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.